We want to look at the book of Malachi today, and it's hard for me to embrace that we've come to the end of the Old Testament. When we started this series, um, I thought I was crazy. Some of you thought I was crazy. Uh, That's okay. There's probably some truth in that, Uh, but we are coming to the end of the Old Testament, and it's been a remarkable study for me personally, what I've learned going through each book, trying to ask and answer questions. What do we need to know about this beyond date, beyond time, beyond who the author was? And it's been reinvigorating for me personally, and I hope you as well, as you've opened the scripture along with us. This book is super easy. It's 55 verses. And I was struck again the last 10, 12 days with the comprehensive nature of what Malachi puts in this short little minor prophet. Let's begin where we do often with Ken Boa and Bruce Wilkinson's talk through the Bible summary paragraph. Malachi marks the close of the Old Testament prophecy and the beginning of 400 years of silence between the Old and New Testaments. Having learned little from their captivity, the people soon lapse into many of the same sins that resulted in their exile in the first place. Covetousness, idolatry, mixed marriages with pagan people, abuse of the poor, calloused hearts. In a question and answer format, Malachi highlights Judah's hard-heartedness and pronounces God's curse upon all who practice such things. They continue, it will remain for John the Baptist, the promised forerunner who would come in the power and spirit of Elijah to bring a hope-filled message. Behold, the Lamb of God. Uh, Let's talk about this book from an overview and also look at some details because it is a short text. I encourage you to read it several times this week. Only 55 verses won't probably take you five minutes to read through this book. But in 55 verses, 21 times we have this reference of the first person, God speaking my. And the my, the first person is connected to my honor, my respect, my altar, my name, my covenant, my messenger, my statutes, my house, my possession, my servant. And this is a great Bible study method tool for you to take a pencil and go in a circle every time you read that first person pronoun in the book of Malachi. Of these 55 verses, 47 is God speaking in a personal way. As Miss Christie mentioned, this is a bit unique in some of the prophecies we read because this minor prophet, as short as it is, focuses on who this person God is, what is his, and then he speaks directly to his people. So it's an interesting uh, book in that regard. Um, we know nothing about Malachi, nothing at all about him. Uh, the name either means my angel or my messenger, and it's tied uh, with another reference in chapter 3, verse 1, where Jesus is referred to as my messenger. So it's a very interesting comparison. If he's named my messenger, we might call it little m, little m messenger, my, my messenger, big m, my, big m messenger, where Jesus Christ. So there's a bit of a word play going on. Malachi is a photo finish to a very long document of the scripture called the Old Testament. And even in the recent days, 10, 12 days, I've been pouring over this book. I have learned things I've never seen before. And isn't that the richness of the scripture? 
that when we're in the Word and we spend time in it, we see things, I joke in my own life, morning by morning, new verses I read. And I saw all kinds of insights that I have missed over the years reading the book of Malachi. So I want to encourage you on in your own Bible study. It is a living Word of God. It is active. It is sharp. It is as relevant the day it was spoken, the day it was penned, and today as you read it, God is speaking to you and me through his word. So my messenger is going to talk about my messenger, God's messenger to come. Um, this coincides with Haggai and, uh, and Zechariah. There's a time frame there. There's a dispute about the dating of the book. We've talked about this in prior books. I don't want to get too hung up on that. I think it probably occurred after Nehemiah had completed his wall. So the message of Haggai and Zephaniah had to do with rebuilding the temple. Remember, they, they, they took a pause, 16 years, then it takes them five to get it finished. In Nehemiah's time, they complete the perimeter in 52 days. They're halfway done, the project. Incredible stories. So this is coming to them during Haggai, Zephaniah, probably after Nehemiah's wall. There are some scholars that dispute that. But what's important is this temple complex had to be rebuilt in order for them to worship and Malachi is going to put a bow, a photo finish on the Old Testament to explain this. Now, there's a number of topics that go on in this rebuilding, and we might talk about where Ezra the priest was trying to rebuild them spiritually. Nehemiah was trying to rebuild the physical wall, and those type of analogies, are, 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 those thoughts are helpful. I'm going to put Malachi together with all of it. Malachi is talking about the internal structures of their heart and their mind, as well as the physical structure of the worship complex. And again, it finishes the Old Testament very well. Now remember, they're still under Persian rule. So there's been three waves of the Jew coming back to repatriate Jerusalem. But the Persians are still ruling them. That can't have been fun. That was a hardship. Even though they were allowed to go home, they're going home to a destroyed community, destroyed homes, destroyed complex, and the Persians still have their thumb on them in their ruling system. In this very short report, it's interesting to see what Malachi is going to address. I remind you, the Holy Spirit impresses the prophets to write these things. It's not just their idea. This is inspiration. And what God the Father inspires Malachi to write is striking because it talks about sacrifice, about tithing, about offerings. We're going to look at issues about marriage and divorce. They're very practical things. And the overall picture, if I could give you a sense of what Malachi is addressing, is the apathy of the pious Jew who just doesn't care. They just don't care. They don't care about the marriage situation. They don't care about tithing. They don't care about offerings to God, the sacrificial system. They just don't care. And it may be the reason they don't care is because they're in ruins. The Persians have their thumb on their neck and they are not going to see a happily ever after in their lifetime, which is a theme we've talked about a number of times through the minor prophets. Now, let's think about his style, and let me suggest an outline, because that can also help in our understanding of these books. Uh, Malachi's style is unique to the Minor Prophets. He's the last of the 12, but I'm going to use this word interlocutor. Interlocutor. Sometimes people say interlocutor. I think it's interlocutor. Remember Paul's writing? When Paul writes in Romans, it's as though he's talking to a person. Uh, so we think about Romans 6, and he's talked about grace and how phenomenal grace is. And they say, well, if grace is that 
wonderful, then I can just sin. It doesn't matter. And what does Paul say in Romans 6, 1? Shall we continue in sin that grace might increase? May it never be. He's answering a question or an objection. Now, we don't know if that was a person or that sort of the group think of the Roman Christians that he was hearing. It's very similar to what Malachi is doing in his book. He's writing to a person that's dissenting with him or disputing. In fact, some people call it disputation literature because the idea is he's back and forth. He's answering these questions and it's an important style to see. Now, it's not necessarily one person, but it's this sense of, well, you know, and this is nothing new, right? We understand this. Well, I can't believe that because God wouldn't be that way. Or why does it matter? Well, let me tell you why it matters. Let me tell you how God truly is. So there's this interlocutor going back and forth, if that makes sense. Now, the interesting part about this is there's six messages or oracles that are gonna unfold in the book. And this is one way of outlining it. There, as we've talked about in all these books, there's numbers of ways to outline the scripture. But these six objectives or these six oracles are helpful in putting framing around what's happening uh, in this dialogue back and forth. And we'll, we'll look at each of those. I want to begin by reading the first oracle, which is in chapter one, verses two and three. This is the opening oracle, and he, it's about, does God love us? I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Was not, was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau. And I have made his mountains a desolation and appointed his inheritance for the jackals of the wilderness. Uh, you don't think I've loved you? I've loved Jacob. Jacob becomes, of course, Israel. I've loved you. I, I, I dealt with Esau. I dealt with the disobedience and the sin of Esau. I loved you. The Edomites chose their path. I loved you. So you see this back and forth. You don't love us. Let me tell you, I do love you. If I didn't love you, I would treat you like I treated Esau. I would treat you like I treated Edom. I would judge them for their sins. Show you a snapshot of these oracles and you can take a look at them on your own. They're very easy to see, but we've got the verses out there so you can see each one of them. The first oracle is the love of God that we've just looked at. The second one in chapter one, verses six to two, nine is the unfaithful priests. The third one is in chapter two, verses 10 through 16. And this has to do, I just group it as unfaithful people. And that really is gonna pertain to their mixed marriages. They weren't to marry outside of of what's called Jews and the fact that they divorced so hastily. And then the fourth oracle is about God's justice. The fifth oracle uh, that people are robbing God, a very interesting passage. And then finally, the last oracle is God's judgment. So again, not the only way to outline, but it's a nice way to see this interlocutor and how back and forth these oracles are addressing specific things that were germane to that time. Let's think about the theme. And as we've gone through the major prophets and minor prophets, the themes are very similar. And I wanna go back to something I mentioned a number of times, the two CP words, chosen people and covenant promise. Chosen people and covenant promise. God chose Israel, not because they were better than any cultures at the time, and he made a covenant to them. That covenant cannot be broken. We think of primarily the Abrahamic covenant. The Abrahamic covenant was God was gonna bless the world through Abram 
and Sarai, Abraham and Sarah, and the lineage that would be innumerable. And those blessings continue to this day. That what he did when he chose those two people to be the father of his people, the, the family of his people, that begins the blessing and cursing motif that goes throughout scripture. So chosen people and covenant promise. And he's going to mention this. It's very interesting that in basically one sentence, Malachi is going to talk about the law of Moses and the prophet Elijah. Let me read, and we're going to come back to this a couple of times, uh, verses 4 and 6 through in chapter 4 of Malachi. Very short. Think of it as one sentence. Think of it in one breath what he's going to say. Follow along as I read. Remember the law of Moses, my servant, even the statutes and ordinances which I commanded him in Horeb. Horeb is another word for Sinai. So when he's up on Mount Sinai getting the law, that's Horeb. For all Israel. Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. Now these bookends, uh, we've got the law of Moses and Elijah the prophet. Hang on, this is really important. We've got 55 verses. Why does God's spirit move Elijah to put the law of Moses and the prophet Elijah in place? Uh, it reminds me of Luke chapter 22. Remember after Jesus' uh, resurrection, the disciples are confused and we have this so-called the road to Emmaus experience. Remember this? And Jesus is walking along with these two disciples. And in Luke 24, 27, we read, from the beginning, Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures beginning with Moses and then with all the prophets. Think about that walk. We, many of us have thought what that would have been like to hear Jesus, who they don't really know who he is yet, explaining himself to these two disciples so we think they're pious Jews, they know the word, and it's just like an explosion of information. I didn't know that about Messiah. I missed that about the Christ. I didn't understand these concertedly 300 prophecies uh, liberally 600 allusions and prophecies about Christ. And on this walk, Jesus is explaining himself from the law of Moses to the prophet Elijah about himself. So think of Malachi. In one sentence, he's telling these people from the beginning of the law of Moses to the last prophet Elijah. He's encompassing the whole story. That's why I call it a photo finish. It's an extraordinary passage. Well, the theme of the book is like a lot of themes of prophecy. It's going to talk about these covenant blessings that are preconditioned on covenant faithfulness. If then, if you do this, I'll bless you. If you don't do this, I'll bring curses upon you and the land. Um, this is like tilling the soil. So if you till the soil and it's fertile and ready for God to bless. Now, we need to stop for just a second and, and acknowledge God blesses us often, even though we're unfaithful. Would, would you agree? He does, I know he does me. That I don't deserve anything. And when he blesses me, I'm just amazed. I'm shocked. I'm amazed. I'm grateful. And I don't know about you, but I feel undeserving. Why would you be this way? 
think about when we're faithful and he blesses us contrasted to when we're just sort of humming along and he blesses us and the difference we feel. When we're faithful and we're doing things according to his word, we're trying to be a good husband, a good mom, a good father, a good daughter, a good employee, a good worker in the field, whatever, um, and he blesses us, we're, we're grateful. But when we don't deserve it and he blesses us, we're astonished. Why? We should be at least, right? Well, this theme that tracks through it is that God's the best hope we can have for God to reign is to have fertile, faithful soil. That's the picture. And so if you live faithfully, you're open for blessing. The problem is they're at a low point. They're not going to see big blessings, let's say. They might be blessed, but the outcome is so bad. They have returned and been repatriated to a broken world. They're going to die not seeing the promises that were made. What's the motivation to live faithfully? Why should they care? Why should they live better off? We could summarize it, if things are so bad, it's not worth living well. If things are not going to get better, why should I be faithful if it doesn't matter? Um, and, and just this week, between healthcare workers, um, a pastor that some of you might know, a nationally, a globally renowned pastor took his own life. Uh, things go wrong in homes. Marriages are falling apart. Children are wayward. There might be abuse in a home right now. And you go, if things are so bad, why continue? That's a valid question. And God is saying, I want you to be faithful to my covenant promises, knowing there won't be covenant blessings. You can't expect them. Not that you're always going to get one-to-one, but the ground is fertile when it's faithful for when God reigns, the blessing to be realized. It's hard to live in that tension of knowing something. I'm not going to see this a good outcome, but I still need to live faithfully no matter what. Um, Joyce Baldwin, who I mentioned last week, is an extraordinary Old Testament scholar, and she observes the last three verses of Malachi form a fitting conclusion to this book, which itself competes with the book of the 12, in other words, the 12 minor prophets. So this is the last one. In in references to the law of Moses and to Elijah the prophet, with both of whom Jesus conversed on the Mount of Transfiguration. And that can be found in Matthew 17, verse 4. There is a backward glimpse to the covenant requirements and a forward look to the one who will work for their fulfillment. Let me read that again. There's a backward glimpse to the covenant requirements. So go back to the covenant promise God made and a forward look to the one who will work for their fulfillment. The promise of the coming of, quote, Elijah, close quote, ensured one more prophetic voice before the end came. Now, that's a harsh phrase to read, this great and terrible day of the Lord. It's a hard thing to choke down. And I want to spend a little time in this passage I've already read once, but I want to read with a little different lens this time. Look again with me in Malachi 4, verses 4 to 6. Remember. Big word. That's the first word. Remember the law of Moses, my servant. Even the statutes and ordinances which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of, here it is, the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. Remember, in a way, sums up all the Pentateuch. 
Remember when we started our study in the big book, the first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Let's call that the corpus, the body of the law. Obviously, the Old Testament contains the law, but let's think of those five books as the primary text for the law of God. This comes through the law of Moses. So what we've got here is this summary, remember. Now, remember is a choice. Remember is always a declarative choice. Don't forget. Remember. Remember to take your lunch money. Remember to take an umbrella. Remember to take your sweater. Remember to take your charger with your phone. Remember to take your phone. Remember you have an appointment today. Why? Because we forget everything. Spiritually, we forget everything. And so the emphasis of the Pentateuch was remember what God has done. Remember his word. Remember his covenant promise. Remember his chosen people because we tend to forget. Deuteronomy is the past. Think back to Moses and the law with a glimpse to the future. Now, this to me is, I I don't know if you get excited about it. I get very excited about this. In one sentence, he talked about Moses and Elijah. Why is that important? Because it incorporates the scripture, if you will. From the first time God spoke to a man face to face and gave him the law, which is, I'm going to argue those five books, and that's brought down to man. Later, of course, we're going to understand the Abrahamic covenant, how this sews together. But Moses was revered by all Jews, unlike any other prophet, because he spoke to God, because he brought down the law. And we've got these, <clears throat> these emblems, if you will, these stone tablets that have the so-called Ten Commandments, the Decalogue on them. But there was much more involved than just what was inscribed on those two tablets. So the law then is given to Moses, is given to his people. And why Elijah? Elijah was the last, let's call him super dramatic prophet. Of course, Elijah calls down fire. Elijah destroys the prophets of Baal, probably the prophets of the Asherah as well. Um, All the spectacular miracles occurred under Elijah. Elisha had more miracles, at least the scripture records more, but they're not as big, not as fancy. They're not as incredible, we might say. So Elijah forms this bookend on prophecy, but They've already veiled, mentioned John the Baptist. John's going to come, and what are they going to say? Is he Elijah? The transfiguration has Moses and Elijah and Jesus. Why? The law and the prophets are complete in this picture. And so the last book of the Old Testament sews this all together. The coming, the 400 years of quiet, God's still on duty. It's the repercussions of sin, the repercussions of rejection, repercussions of the blessing and cursing motif, you have not done what I've asked you to do. Let me make a few observations about Malachi 4, verses 4 to 6 to help you see it. Again, the first one, the word remember. Secondly, having looked back, we're looking forward to the great and terrible day of the Lord. I actually love that phrase, but it might creep some people out. It's a great day. It's a terrible day. When he comes, it's going to be amazing but it's also going to be terrible because justice will cut two ways. This is taken from Joel chapter 2, verse 31, the great and terrible day of the Lord. And again, Elijah is the one who explains this with his dramatic uh, miracles that he used. Then we have the future ministry that he's going to talk about with this reference to the fifth commandment, honor your father and mother. It's the first commandment with a promise that Essentially, things will go well with you. Why in the world is he bringing up the fifth commandment? All things he could talk about, the family was the foundation that God designed to be a microcosm 
of what it meant to worship God. The father, the mother, the children, they were to teach their children, the great Shema, teach your children. When you walk in, when you get up, you're rising up, getting down, and when you're working with your hands, with your mind, think about the word of God all the time. Um, the, the one thing about homeschooling, and you know, just like that, you're all homeschoolers, uh, but the one thing about homeschooling is you have an extraordinary opportunity to teach your sons and daughters about the word throughout life. The stuff of life, what's going on? What's God teaching us? How do we understand his word as it pertains to living in this crazy time? I hate even talking about COVID-19. I'm so done with talking about it, Uh, but it's our reality. So how do we live faithfully when people are saying all sorts of different things and how we understand it? Uh, The home is where that centers. Mom and dad teach me. Mom and dad give me that security. We've proven scientifically what scripture already knew. Those formative years are critical. That son, that daughter needs to look at a husband and a wife. Uh, My dear uh, professor mentor, Dr. Howard Hendricks said, the best way to raise healthy children is with a strong marriage. If you have a strong marriage, they're seeing it acted out. Parents parent differently. Dad might be a little more strict, maybe mom's more strict. One's more lenient. One will give you money, the other one won't. They're two different people. That gives us a picture of how two sinners work together the way God intended. You want to raise healthy children? You have a really strong marriage. Malachi is referring to this, the hearts of the father and the hearts of the children. This goes back to what God designed. This goes back to the intent of this whole idea. And this curse gives us chills. But let's go back to the first family. When Adam and the woman sin. And I call her the woman intentionally because she's not named Eve until Genesis 3 after she bears a man-child named Cain. She's it's the man and the woman. Forget all this gender discussion and debate. The text says ish ma'ish, ish isha. It's man and woman. She's not called Eve until she has the child and then she's renamed living because she's the mother of life now going forward. So the Adam, Adam, Adam and his woman are in the garden. This was a relationship they were to have. They fall, they go into exile because of their sin. And now we've got this family system. Are you gonna train your children to follow me based on what I told you and taught you? Of course, right away we have a murder. Right away we have to deal with that. And there other another son's born him, Seth is born. But we have this storyline that goes on that is a family system. And that was the fabric. So when people talk maybe cavalier or glibly about the family being the center of the nation, it is. The family unit and how we teach people about the love of Christ, following him in his word. Don't let the world teach it theology. Don't adopt this nomenclature about what the family is and isn't from the world. They don't know what they're doing. God does. He designed it. And the book of Malachi says from the law to the prophets, by the way, I'm going to return what was broken. I'm going to return the father to their children and the children to their father. It's a beautiful book. The problem is this is hard soil of indifference. And if we're not living faithfully, we're not cultivating our spiritual lives to receive this information, to receive this blessing. We're, We're living in apathy or in indifference or I've got it figured out. And that's where the people at Malachi's time were. Joyce Baldwin calls it an uneventful waiting period when God seemed to have forgotten his people. An uneventful waiting period when God seemed to have forgotten his people. And that can lead to apathy. 
that can lead to indifference. That can lead, I mean, if, if the prospect for rain looks dim, why plant a garden? If the prospects for rain look dim, why treat your lawn and fertilize it and go to all sorts of you know, extraordinary efforts to have a pretty lawn if it's not going to rain? If God's not going to bless, why live faithfully? That's their feeling. That's their motivation. Um, Malachi, again from Joyce Baldwin, Malachi's remarkable ethical thrust has lost none of its cutting edge through the passing of time. You know, we have to read these folks slowly because they, they use a broader vocabulary than we might be accustomed to. Malachi's remarkable ethical thrust has lost none of its cutting edge through the passing of time. His teaching, both negative and positive, strikes at the heart of nominal, easygoing Christianity as it did at that of Judaism. Think about that statement. And we're, we're easy going, we're cavalier, we can do what we want. I am a Christian, I, grace is, you know, I can get forgiven, it doesn't matter. I can choose all these things the world's telling me that are okay. Nothing's different, nothing different. Joyce continues, um, can it be that the book is disparaged because, quote, without, excuse me, quote, with man as the filter through which the word must pass, or, if you like, arbiter of the meaning of the word, it is inevitable that he will censor out what he does not wish to hear and audit only what is predisposed to hear. Again, wonderful language, a little bit hard maybe for us to grasp at first reading, but she's saying, look, if I, if I can filter this the way I want, then my identity can be whatever it wants. I can live however I want. Divorce or remarriage, it doesn't matter. I can do what I want. That's what Malachi is calling on the carpet. You weren't supposed to marry outside of Judaism. You weren't supposed to divorce at will. You weren't supposed to stop giving to God. You're supposed to tithe. That was a part of worship. I don't care. I'm going to do what I want. And that's what Baldwin captures so well. With man as the filter through which the word must pass. I can interpret it the way I want. Um, those of you that know me know I have this, uh, I have a lot of pet peeves. But when I'm in a small group, and someone reads a verse and they say, what does this mean to you? And we go around the room and pool our ignorance. Everything, my sanctification is on the edge from exploding. I don't care what it means to you. What does it mean? What does it mean? How do I apply it is the question. How do I understand it? What do I learn from it? I don't care, as Joyce says, to take the word pass through you or to be the arbiter of the meaning of the word? I don't think that's what that means. And this is the argument people use when they live in sin. Well, Jesus and I have an arrangement. I know that's what the Bible says, but Jesus and I have an understanding. Malarkey, baloney, that's a lie. And we get seduced because we'd rather define God our way than follow God's definition of himself. This is the all too ongoing problem. I've said for years, we've turned our personal rights into gods. We've turned the I, me, my into our little idols, little G-gods. I do this. I'm this way. This is how I was made. This is what I want. I don't care what they say. I know I shouldn't, but I'm going to do it anyway. That's exactly what Malachi is addressing. The most egregious thing we can do is to make ourselves to be God. And when you and I redefine the scripture, when we're the arbiter of the meaning when we're the one who interprets the word to our liking, we are guilty of an egregious sin before God. Apathy is tough to deal with. 
And if there are a number of lessons from the book, but um, I think the hardest thing for us to overcome, people that don't care. Um, I, I have had over the years the challenge of trying to work with people who don't care. Um, there's the axiom, everyone is motivated, but you can't motivate anyone. When a person doesn't care, how do you motivate them? How do you help them change? Well, you can't, but you're, you want to, and that's the tension. And I would put a pulse on American Christianity to say we're the most self-centered. We are the most at-ease people group. Uh, materialism and consumerism taken to the extreme has made us trust the wrong things. And so at the end of the day, we can smugly say, well, I just don't really care. And when those props are taken away, if God allows your health to go south, your finances to go south, your relationships to go south, your marriage, your kids break your heart, fill in the blank, then we get spiritual. Then we get religious. Then we need God. I can't tell you how many people have come to my office over the years and tried to convince me why they need to get a divorce. I'm not discompassionate. I'm not unkind or uncaring, but I listen to their story and I, I tell them two things. The first thing I tell them is I don't give anybody permission to get divorced. I don't find it in scripture to give you permission to divorce. I'm not going to sanction your divorce. I also know people are going to do what they want to do. So I can't stop you from doing it and I'm not going to give you permission. Now that said, I'm not uncaring. I love to help. There's good help available. Well, I've been to counseling. All those stories I've heard for 40 plus years. The last question I leave them with, because they've already made their mind up, and I don't mean to hurt your feelings. Most people, when this comes up, they've already made their minds up. And the last question I ask them is, what do you think Jesus thinks of your decision? And I'm not trying to shame them in a bad way. I'm trying to turn up the heat to say, this doesn't matter what some pastor or preacher or counselor tells you. What matters is, what do you think Christ thinks of what you're doing? And then I leave the Holy Spirit to work. People are still going to do what they want to do. They robbed God. How have we robbed God? You haven't given offerings. You haven't followed the sacrificial system. You haven't given a tithe of your first fruits. I'm trying to bless this unfertile land, and you're not doing what I've asked you to do. You know, the, the most astonishing thing I learned about giving is you can live better on 90 or 80% than you can on 100. You will be blessed if you give to the Lord more so than if you hoard. It's a fact. It's a theological fact. It's not prosperity theology. Do you trust me with the first? If you do, I'll take care of you. If you think you can do it on your own, good luck. You will live better on 90%, on 80%, whatever number you come up on, 70%, than you will live on 100% if you do this God's way. And he's calling them out. Your disposability of marriage, your, your, your um, greed with money, your going beyond the borders of marriage and what I told you you could do. Very common things. So the lesson I have for you and for me is pretty simple. Ask God to break your heart for what matters to him. Ask God to break your heart for what matters to him. The problem with Western Christianity, it's an I, me, my religion. And I mean that in the sense of a religion, not a relationship with Christ. Ask God what breaks his heart and what you need to do to align yourself to him. That's worship. Put the I, me, my down, you, yours, you're the one that's important, 
not I, me, my. Will he care for us? Yes. Does he love us? Yes. Is he a perfect father? Yes, yes. A million times, yes. But we've gotten this thing out of alignment, in my opinion. Christianity has become a consumable religion as opposed to a worshipful relationship with the creator of the universe. And that's the big differential. I'm going back in this chapter of my life in my 60s and uh, taking on some new projects. And one of the things that I'm really enjoying doing is going back and reading some, some true classics. And I'm not saying anyone else should do this. I'm weird. We all know that. But I had to read uh, Augustine's Confessions when I was in seminary. And I, I've told Cindy, my wife, I said, I had to read it, but I can't prove it. Um, and so I, I'm going back. I'm rereading it. I am, I've gotten a number of resources to help me read it. And I am having a ball. This is written, uh, Augustine is perhaps the most influential person in Western Christianity once we turn to the end of the book of the Bible. That's not an overstatement. Uh, the things he dealt with in his life as the bishop uh, of Hippo in Northern Africa for a period of time uh, is the stuff that's seminal to how we talk about Christianity today. Now, I'm not worshiping history, but these were men who grappled with the same things you and I are grappling with. And if you know anything about Augustine, you know the line I'm going to read in a moment, and I'm going to read a longer section of it. Now, let me give you a little qualifier. When you read Augustine, it's like reading English Bibles. There's New America Standard Versions, there are King James Versions, there are Net Versions, because it's a translation, and it's a cumbersome language. It's not a difficult read in the sense it's not long, but it's pithy and meaty. And what I'm going to read is a little different than you're going to watch on the screen, but you'll hear why it's close enough that you'll be able to track with me. This is in book one, and this is his first paragraph that he writes. Let me read it. You follow. I'll try to read carefully so you can take it in. Great art thou, O Lord, and greatly to be praised. Great is thy power, and of thy wisdom there is no number. A man desires to praise thee, he is but a tiny part of all that thou hast created. He bears about him his mortality, the evidence of his sinfulness, and the evidence that thou dost resist the proud. Let me stop for just a second and add, I'm not presuming everybody wants to worship God. Everybody loves God. I am believing that God's making us in his image. There's something going on in the heart of man. There's something going on in his mind the dark night of the soul, the meaningless experience when you're out in the wilderness, when you're on a canoe, when you're out in the ocean, when you're by yourself, something beckons, not some metaphysical thing. It's the image of God that we're designed in. And Augustine picks up on this with this beautiful phrase. He writes, thou dost so excite him to praise thee in his joy. And here's the line, you know, if you know anything about Augustine, for thou hast made us for thyself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. Grant me, O Lord, to know which is the soul's first movement toward thee, to implore thy aid or to utter its praise of thee. And whether it must, uh, and whether it must know thee before it can implore, for it would seem clear that no one can call upon thee without knowledge of thee. For he did, for if he did, he might invoke another than thee, knowing thee not. It gets a little cumbersome, but what he's saying is, uh, how do I know I'm calling on you and imploring you? Am I doing it the right way? And then he thanks him for his word, and he thanks him for the preacher, and the preacher is probably one of his superiors that taught him the scriptures. But that phrase, let's look at it again. 
Thou hast made us for thee, and our heart is unquiet or restless until it finds its rest in thee. Um, When we close the chapter on Malachi, I would ask you to ask God to break your heart for what matters to him. You and I live in between. I don't know what the future is going to look like. I don't know what post-COVID is going to be. I don't know what it means to go back to church. Nobody does. The opinions are out there. God bless you if you want to go read them all. Knock yourself out. He's sovereign. He's in control. He loves. We are not unique. We're not better than prior generations, nor will we be better than future generations if we should continue to live. How do you live in between? This was the question for all the minor prophets. Covenant people, covenant promise, chosen people, will you live faithfully no matter what your experience tells you? We become apathetic. We become fat. We become lazy spiritually. If I could turn up the fire underneath you, what breaks God's heart? What will motivate you to care even though we're in between? That is the critical part of Scripture. Is it God's Word, God's Spirit, and God's people come together and align to be more like Him, not more like the world, not more like somebody's opinion about the world. This is our plumb line. This is our measuring rod. It's always faithful. It's always true. It's always just. It's always right. You will never waste time resting in him.